John chapter 10, we're going to pick it up in verse 40. It says, and he, Jesus, went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Kind of a weird place to pick it up, but this is where we left off. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's been revealing to the people that he is God. And the setting here has been the Feast of Dedication. Uh, This is the celebration of a major event that uh, occurred when uh, the temple was cleansed and God had had restored Israel's freedom to worship. And the great irony that we looked at last week was that while the people were celebrating their freedom to worship in the temple, uh, they completely missed the God of the temple. Right, Jesus comes, and rather than hearing and heeding his words and his works, um, well, the story ends saying that the religious leaders tried to seize him in order to kill him. Uh, Irony of ironies. We're here to worship the Lord and our freedom to worship him, but the God of the temple comes and we're going to kill him, right? They completely missed it. And what these leaders failed to realize is that they had a window of opportunity. That's our key word today, opportunity. A window of opportunity. And they don't realize that that window is rapidly closing. That window of opportunity to receive true freedom. See, they don't know it, but this is the last time that Jesus will be in Jerusalem until his triumphant entry, his triumphal entry that uh, is going to come in just a, a matter of months from now. This is the last time that Jesus is going to invite these Pharisees to see and to believe. From here on out, he will have nothing more to say to them in witness. That's critical. That's key. I told you we're going to talk about opportunity today. Um, The opportunity to hear and to heed God's words and to hear and heed God's works. The opportunity to live a transformed life. The opportunity to live a life that impacts others. Webster's Dictionary defines opportunity this way. It says opportunity is a favorable juncture of circumstances that offers a good chance of advancement or progress, right? We all get opportunities. Maybe you read in the news just the other day, there were two guys and they wanted to start a new business venture. Kind of a tricky time, 2020, to start a new business venture. Well, they didn't have the capital. They didn't have anybody to invest in this business opportunity, but they saw an opportunity for them to do this. They received in the mail, like many of you guys did, a stimulus check. Right? Each of these guys reveal, you know, received their stimulus checks, and that in itself wasn't enough to give them the startup capital they, that they needed. So what they did is that they, they invested their stimulus money in Twitter stock. And over the span of seven months, they saw a seven-fold return on their investment. Uh, imagine if they would have invested in GameStop, what would have... <laughs> come about of it, but they invested in Twitter and now their business is up and running. Well, Jesus used a similar illustration to this idea of seizing an opportunity in Matthew chapter 13. He was talking about the kingdom of God. I'll put it on the screen for you. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went out and he sold all he had and he bought that field. 
right? In other words, he seized his opportunity. And we're going to look at three opportunities here in our text today. We're going to look at a lost opportunity. We're going to look at a legacy opportunity. And finally, we're going to look at a lasting opportunity. If you're taking notes, you can write down the first point, a lost opportunity. Let's read it again. And Jesus went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he strayed. Keywords to dial into here is that Jesus went away. Jesus went away. Again, we're looking at this through the context of the Pharisees and their lost opportunities. This is the last time that Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem until he comes back for his triumphal entry. This is the last time that Jesus is going to specifically invite these Pharisees to see and to believe. Last time. A while back, I spoke on this idea of last times. We we always recognize and, and commemorate and celebrate the first times, right? The, the first kiss that you have, the first steps that your baby takes, the first words that they speak, you know? But, but the last times, they don't get commemorated. As a matter of fact, they tend to slip by and we don't even notice them. This, this came home to me in a powerful way. Uh, several years ago, my wife had traveled up to uh, Seattle, she was going to um, be traveling with my daughter and, and her kids to come, uh, to come down to Southern California. My daughter, Caitlin, had gone with her, uh, and both my daughters had babies. And so Brenda sends me this picture of them waiting uh, for uh, the, you know, getting out of the, the Uber, I think, at the airport. And there is a pile of, of stuff, an ocean of stuff. There's diaper bags and strollers and, and just all of this stuff. It looked like they were, they were moving away for months, you know? And I looked at this and I had one of those moments, you know, where you see something and it just kind of, it just hits you. And I had all these memories flood back of my, here, here's my, my daughters and, and they're all grown up and they're having babies of their own and, and they're in this whole new season. And I'm just sitting there kind of like father of the bride moment where she tells him she's getting married and he looks at her and he just sees this little girl, you know, and, and I'm looking at this picture and I'm thinking, man, my babies are all grown up. And then, I, you know, I just started thinking about, you know, all the stuff of them growing up, bedtime stories and, you know, putting Band-Aids on a cut and, you know, had this, this specific memory of when we would go to the beach and I'd take all my kids and I'd, I'd put all three of them up on my shoulders and we had this routine. I'd put the one on one shoulder. I couldn't do it again today to save my life. Uh, put the other one on the other shoulder and then I'd, I'd take, you know, the last one and the kids would duck down and then, you know, put it over you know, my, my, my neck there and, you know, and I thought, when was the last time that I did that? And I couldn't remember, but you know, there was a last time, right? And the last times they just sneak by. And as it pertains to our opportunity to hear, to heed and to respond to the gospel, a similar thing is true. These missed opportunities. Jesus told a parable in Mark chapter four about a farmer sowing his seed. And as he described it, he said, some seeds fell on the wayside and were immediately eaten by the birds. Another seed fell on stony ground and it withered because it had no root. And he said that other seed fell among thorns that choked out the growth of the seed and made it unfruitful. And Jesus explained that the seed represents the word of God. 
and that the thorns represent the cares of this world. He said this, Mark chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, these are the ones that are sown among thorns, and they are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. I illustrated this idea, this concept of things coming in and choking out the, the necessary for the things that are urgent and unfruitful. Years ago at a men's retreat, I had my wife take a bunch of pictures of all the guys' kids without their knowledge at church over a course of Sundays. And then before I preached, I played the song Cats in the Cradle as I flashed these kids' pictures up on the screen. And for those of you that are younger, let me just remind you the, the, the lyrics. My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and there were bills to pay. And he learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you coming home, Dad? I don't know when. But we'll get together then, son. You know we'll have a good time then. And the song just guts you like a fish, you know, as it continues, because it just goes through all of these things, all of these momentous events that happen in dad's way, right? Lost opportunities. Jesus told another parable in Luke's gospel about a man who trusted in his wealth. He said, a rich man had a fertile farm and it produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods and I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night and then who will get everything that you worked for? Let's keep this in context. The, in context, the point in our text here is that the Pharisees had the opportunity given to them to hear and to heed the words of God. And they had no idea that this would be the last time. This last time would just pass them by. The last time that Jesus is going to invite them to see and to believe. And so verse 40 says, Jesus went away. He went away. They missed it. They missed their opportunity. Now, point of application right here for you. Maybe today, that's a word for you. Maybe today, as we consider that this opportunity given and their cluelessness to the fact this is the last opportunity. Maybe today is your last opportunity to see and to believe. The Bible says your life is a vapor. It's here for a little while and then it's gone. The Bible says that it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. And the Bible says that today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because no one knows the day or the hour when you are going to have the last opportunity to hear and to heed the words of Jesus. There's a story about D.L. Moody. He was a famous evangelist back in the day, long, long time ago, 100 years ago, over 100 years ago, I think. Um, 
he was giving the gospel in Chicago. And at the end of his message, rather than give the people an opportunity right at that moment to respond to the gospel, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll be back here tomorrow night. You go home and you think about it. And later in retelling the story, he pointed out that that very night was the Chicago fire where thousands of people died. Many of the people who had been gathered to hear him died that night. And D.L. Moody swore that he would never, ever give the gospel presentation without giving an, an opportunity that specific day. And in the same way today, I mean, you, this, is, this is not fear tactics. This is, this is just, this is life. You need to understand the last times they sneak by. And this may be your last time. And today, at the end of the message, I'll give you an opportunity to respond as well. And so we see a lost opportunity. Secondly, I want you to see a legacy opportunity. Verse 40, Jesus went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. And then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. This, of course, is speaking about John the Baptist. Jesus said regarding John the Baptist that he was the greatest man, naturally speaking, who ever lived. Jesus said that. That's pretty high praise. Why did he say that? He said that because of the opportunity that John was given and because of the opportunity that John took, that he obeyed. See, Isaiah the prophet, he prophesied that John would send, or rather that God would send a prophet to prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ. And Matthew chapter three tells us that it was John who was given that opportunity. Matthew chapter three, verses one through three, it says, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his his paths straight. See, apart from Jesus, John the Baptist is probably the most theologically significant person in the Gospels. His message and his ministry marked not only the culmination of the Old Testament law and prophets, but it heralded the coming of the kingdom of God to man. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. God had been silent for 400 years. And now he spoke to Israel, heralding the coming of the kingdom of God to earth. See, the opportunity that John was given was a legacy opportunity. He had a legacy opportunity, the hope of proclaiming forgiveness and reconciliation between man and God to multiple generations. And he did that simply by preaching a baptism of repentance and imploring people to prepare their hearts to meet the Messiah, to meet Jesus. Now, for somebody who is given so great of an opportunity, you would think that John brought a lot to the table, right? You would expect that he'd have this impressive resume, that he would have this whole list of accomplishments that he had accomplished, that he would have been you know, endowed uh, in, you know, with, with this incredible ability to work fantastic miracles, right? 
But look again at verse 41. What's it say? It says, many came to Jesus and they said, John performed no sign, but all the things that he spoke about this man were true. Listen, understand, it wasn't John's methods that made the difference. It was his message. It wasn't John's ability that made the difference. It was his availability. It wasn't the power of John's words that made the difference. It was the power of God's word. It wasn't the power of John's works that made the difference. It was the power of Jesus's works, right? This is the idea. And what opportunity was it that God gave to John to simply point people to Jesus? He didn't do any miracles, right? There wasn't any, this, this remarkable, you know, stuff that you might expect for somebody with such a high calling, with such a great opportunity. Why do I emphasize that? Because a lot of times we, we're like Moses. You know, when God came to Moses and started telling him about all that he wanted to do, what did he get? He got an argument from Moses. Moses just had a laundry list of reasons why I can't do that. You've got the wrong guy. Right? And we're like that. I'm thinking, you know, God's called me to do this particular thing. And all of a sudden, going through my mind, I'm thinking, well, there's got to be a hundred other people, a thousand other people who are better at this than me. And maybe arguing with God. I'm not the guy. I, can't, I, I, I don't have a resume. I don't have this incredible power. You know, there's got to be somebody else who, who, who you could pick, Right? So John, he doesn't do any miracles, but what happens? When the people meet Jesus, they say everything that he said is true. It's true, because he just told us about Jesus, and now we've met Jesus, and it's all true. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, the word of God's like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself right? And I want you, just think about this in light of what we're reading here. I want you to see the huge significance that John's work had to set Jesus up for his work. Now, it sounds horrible to say it that way because Jesus is God, but God orchestrated this, right? And so Jesus, what is it? You know, get it. He is three months from going to the cross at this point. Right, yeah, what do you do in, in sports? Like it's crunch time, right? You, 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 you map out a play and you're like, what are we gonna do? And you know, I'm reminded of the, the Boston Celtics. They, they, were, they, had the, they had, you know, less than a second left. They had to mark up one play and the, the coach was sitting down and he's drawing all this elaborate plan. He's telling all those guys, you know, this is what we're gonna do and you're gonna go here and you're gonna go there. And Larry Bird just finally goes, just get the ball to me. And the, the coach is like, I'm the coach here. I'll call the play. And then he paused for a minute and he looked at all the guys and he said, just get the ball to Larry, right? <laughs> but the thing is, is that God had called John to respond to this opportunity and John not being this major, you know, hey, uh, you know, I'm here now. You know, you guys, it's cool. I've, I'm all that and, and, and a bag of chips. You know, I'm the guy. No, John's just like, okay, God told me to do this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell everybody about Jesus. I'm just going to speak the truth. And Jesus now, where's he go in the final seconds of the game to reap the most fruit, to cover the most ground? He goes to an area that John had been preaching in, where John had been at work to do exactly what God had called him to do, to prepare the way for him. I want you to understand that this isn't a fluke. 
It's not a circumstance or a, a, a coincidence. It's a pattern. It's a pattern. In John chapter 9, we read that Jesus sent out his disciples two by two to preach the gospel. And then you get to John chapter 10, and we read there that after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also, and he sent them two by two before his face, where? Into every city and place where he himself, Jesus, was about to go. This is a pattern. Prepare the way. I told you that Jesus said of John, I tell you that all who ever lived, none is greater than John. Yet, listen to what Jesus says, even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. Listen, John is not the only one with a legacy opportunity. Every one of you here has a legacy opportunity to go before Jesus and to prepare his way. God has placed you supernaturally in your circle of influence to just simply do what John did to point to Jesus and to speak the truth so that people, when they encounter Jesus, they can say, my gosh, everything Mary told me was true. Everything Jim told me was absolutely true. Everything Frank told me was true. It's not your methods that make the difference. It's Jesus' message. It's not your ability, it's your availability. It's not the power of your words. It's the power of God's word. It's not the power of your works. It's the power of Jesus' works. You have no idea what kind of a harvest that God will do through your legacy if you simply follow John's pattern here. By the way, where is John the Baptist at this point? Anybody say? He's dead. He's dead. He's been dead for a long time at this point. See, here's the thing. His legacy is living on. People are coming to know the Lord. Look at verse 42. Many believed in him there, in Jesus there. Why? Because Jesus is working in the field where John had worked to prepare. The Pharisees had a lost opportunity. John had a legacy opportunity. And that brings us finally to a lasting opportunity. Again, verse 41 and 42, it says that <clears throat> the people come, they're like, John, perform no sign, but all the things that Jesus spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him, in Jesus there. Here's my question for you today. Do you believe? Do you believe? Paul, speaking to the Hebrews, he said, Christ as the Son of God is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and we remain confident in our hope in Jesus Christ. That is why the Holy Spirit says, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. See, the overarching picture of the Pharisees in verse 49 is unbelief. We're going to kill him. And it was simply for these guys a matter of examining the evidence honestly and being willing to accept the truth. But they refused to believe. Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to examine the evidence honestly and to accept the truth? 
Again, writing to the Hebrews, Paul said, take care, brothers and sisters, that there will not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another every day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's the deal. The Bible says very clearly that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin means to miss the mark. It's an, it's an archery term. You go down and you pull out, you know, your, your bow and arrow and everything in you is trying to hit the bullseye. And do you hit the bullseye every time? No, you don't, right? And the one who missed was called, in, in, in old archery terms, was called the sinner. You missed the mark. And all of you, every single one of us, we've missed the mark. The mark is perfection. Jesus said as much to his disciples. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds the, law, the, the Pharisees, right, that, that you can't come to know God. And they're like, well, who can, who can be more religious than those guys? What's the point that Jesus was making? The point that Jesus was making is, look, if you want to live your life about trying to earn a right standing with God according to religion, do good, try harder, you will never be perfect. I mean, here are the Pharisees. They spend their whole life, it's all about their religious rules, all about their regulations. They didn't realize that the whole reason that God had given them the law in the first place was so that they would be awakened to the fact that they couldn't keep it. The whole intent of the law, it was our tutor, the Bible says, to bring us to Christ. It was a, a teacher. And so the, the, the mark of perfection is one that it's like, well, man, I, God, I, you say all of these things I'm supposed to do, I can't do it. And God's like, yeah, that's the point. And he wants to bring you and me to a place to where we cry out and we say, God, I have mercy on me, I, I'm a sinner. See, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. He's the one who kept the law perfectly. And the Bible says that he, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us, Jesus took the sins of mankind. He took your sins to the cross. Your sins past, your sins present, your sins future. This is what God has done in the person of the work of Jesus Christ. And the whole point is that we, like the Pharisees, might come to the place to where we realize I need a savior. I cannot get right with God on my own. And you can't get right with God on your own. And this is why the Bible is so very clear that it calls us, first of all, that we need to repent. And as people that are action-oriented, so often we misunderstand what repent means. We hear about repentance. Repentance simply means to turn. And instantaneously, when we think about turning, we think, oh, I gotta, I, I'm doing bad things. Now I got to go do good things to get right with God. That's not how it works. Repentance is... I'm on the wrong road and I need to turn. And who am I turning to? I'm turning to Jesus. I'm simply turning. Repentance is wrong way, wrong direction, leading to death. The, the, the wages of, of sin is death, right? What's wages? You, you work all week and at the end of the week, you say, pay me what I've earned. 
That's what the Bible means when it says the wages of sin is death. What you and I have earned by our actions is death. But we go, man, this is a wrong way. I turn in repentance to Jesus. And I believe what the scriptures say, that he took my sins upon himself on the cross. That he promises me that if I will trust in him, if I will believe in him, that he died on the cross for my sin in my place. That he rose again from the dead after three days. That he conquered Satan and sin and death. And he promises that if we place our faith in him, that we too will conquer Satan and sin and death. And so we repent. We turn. Next is we confess. What do we confess? Well, the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess simply means to agree with God. So what am I agreeing with God in? I'm agreeing with him that I'm a sinner. I'm agreeing with him that, that I ain't any prize to be one that, that my actions and the road that I've been on, really, I deserve death. So I'm confessing, God, I'm a sinner. I'm also agreeing with God that Jesus, you are the savior. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. I confess. And then thirdly, I invite. Lord, I've turned. I'm turning to you. I'm confessing that I'm a sinner and I'm confessing that you're the savior. And now I invite you, Lord, to come into my life and to save me. The apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, as God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says... At just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. I'm going to close with three questions, and then I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give you that invitation to respond to the Lord's invitation today. First question, you could write it down. What are some of the lost opportunities from my past and how can I redeem them? <laughs> Second question. Well, we'll put these up at the end too if you don't get them all written down in time. How can lost opportunities inform my present and my future? Third question. What opportunities do I have right now to leave a lasting legacy for others? <laughs> 